Section 89 of Stratagems and Conspiracies to Defraud Life Insurance Companies. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Brandon B. Stratagems and Conspiracies to Defraud Life Insurance Companies. An Authentic Record of Remarkable Cases by John B. Lewis and Charles C. Bomba. The Austin Disappearance Mr. John C. Austin, or Jack Austin, as he was familiarly known to many people in New York and Brooklyn, was a member of the firm of shipbrokers Lord and Austin, whose office was at number 18 Broadway. He was well known as an athlete and devotee of field sports, and was one of the original incorporators of the Williamsburg Athletic Club. Up to the time of his disappearance, he was considered a man of comfortable means, but not wealthy. His home was at number 1114 Dean Street, Brooklyn, where his family consisted of three young children, his wife having died in February 1891. He bore an excellent reputation, and before going into business on his own account, had been in the employ of Mallory & Company. His firm was largely engaged in the business of charters to Haiti and other West Indian islands, and was supposed to be prosperous. Austin left his home shortly after noon on July 4, 1893, saying that he thought of going to the races, but he might change his mind and decide to take a bath at Manhattan Beach. He kissed his three children when he went out, and when they cried at not being allowed to accompany him, he comforted them with the promise that he would be back to dinner, and would take them to see the fireworks in the evening. From that moment there is no record that anyone ever saw John C. Austin alive again. Although after the news of the drowning, a barber at Nostrand Avenue, near Fulton Street, who had a very slight acquaintance with Austin, said that he thought he had come to his shop to be shaved shortly after noon. That afternoon, as nearly as can be calculated, in the vicinity of four o'clock, a man hired room number 391 in the bathing pavilion at Manhattan Beach. He placed his valuables in one of the envelopes provided for the purpose and wrote across it in lead pencil, John C. Austin, 1114 Dean Street, Brooklyn. That bit of writing afterward constituted one of the strongest points of evidence for the plaintiffs in a suit in court in the following January. The envelope was placed in the safe, and a check, number 272, was handed to the man. It was nearly nine o'clock that night, and the last bathers had long departed, when the clerk in charge of the office, in going through the contents of the safe, found the envelope bearing Austin's name and address. The bathroom was immediately searched, and in it were found a blue serge coat and vest, and grey trousers, somewhat worse for wear, a blue striped outing shirt, white underclothing, and a derby hat of a rather peculiar shape. In the pockets were a card case, containing cards bearing Austin's name and address, a penknife, a bunch of keys, and some lead pencils. Ernest L. Schumann, superintendent of the bathing pavilion, 
opened the envelope left in the office. In the presence of Captain Hotchkiss of the Manhattan Beach Police, John J. Rothwell, the clerk, and fireman Peter R. Mullins. It was found to contain a lady's gold watch and chain, studded with pearls, a seal ring bearing the initial S, a pocketbook containing $3, and a coin purse with $1.05 in small change. The finding of the clothing and valuables was accepted as certain evidence that the owner had been drowned while bathing, and a dispatch was sent at once to Austin's home in Brooklyn. His brother, Joseph E. Austin, and his brother-in-law, Thomas C. Carruthers, hastened to the beach and fully identified the effects as those of Austin. A search for the body was begun, and for two days following, a constant patrol was kept on the beach by the police and volunteer searchers. Every foot of the beach in the adjacent shores of Sheepshead Bay, Jamaica Bay, Plum Island, and Rockway were searched in vain. That the body of a man drowned at Cooney Island should not be cast ashore somewhere inside of Sandy Hook was something unprecedented in the recollection of the oldest beachman, and by degrees faint suspicions began to be entertained. Those who still clung firmly to the drowning theory pointed out that the body, after coming to the surface, had been driven out seaward by the strong northwesterly winds that had prevailed for some days. At this the old-timers shook their heads in doubt. It was about four o'clock, they argued, when the bathroom was hired, and the flood tide was setting strongly for several hours afterward, which could hardly have failed to cast the body ashore long before the ebb set in. It was absurd, they pointed out, to suppose that the man could have remained swimming until the end of the flood. Even if he had done so, the body would have come to the surface within a week, and experience showed that the full flood would have carried it shoreward. Little by little, other suspicious features of the case began to crop out. There was but one ring found in the envelope, the seal one, which was of little value. While it was known that Austin always wore a ring set with a fine brilliant, it was naturally asked why he did not place it also in the security of the safe. His friends explained it by saying that the diamond ring was fitted so closely that it could only be removed with difficulty, but several persons recalled having seen Austin take off the ring to allow the beauty of the diamond to be examined. Still another point to which significance was attached was the finding of the lady's watch, which had belonged to Austin's wife and which he had never before been known to wear. Inquiry led to the discovery that he had carried it for several days, while his own watch, a magnificent chronometer, had been under repair in Benedict's in Broadway. Inquiry at Benedict's resulted in the discovery that the watch had been returned on July 3rd, the very day before Austin's disappearance. This threw still more doubt on the case, particularly when it was learned that Austin had not called for the watch himself, but sent a messenger boy with a check for $8, the amount of the bill for repairs. Why he should have trusted such a valuable instrument to a messenger boy, 
when his office was within the stone's throw of the jeweler's, and why he should have continued to wear his wife's watch was considered peculiar. No trace of the watch has ever been found. Still another circumstance added to the sum of suspicion. Austin was a frequent patron at Manhattan Beach Bathing Pavilion, and was well known by sight by most of the employees. And yet not one of them could remember having seen him on the day in question. What made this the more remarkable was the fact that, as the air was chilly and a rather disagreeable wind was blowing, there were comparatively few attendees at the baths that day. In all, not more than 600, when on warm days the crowd might be counted by as many as thousands. A photograph of the missing man, which was shown to all the employees of the pavilion, was recognized by none of them as that of a man whom they had seen that day. Then there was the question of clothing, which while it had undoubtedly belonged to Austin, was not such as he would have been likely to wear on a holiday. It was well worn, and while it might have served for rough-outing purposes, was by no means like Austin's usual attire. The small amount of money found was also surprising, and Mr. Lord, Austin's partner, called to attention the fact that the missing man always carried a considerable sum about him, and that he had never known him to be without at least $100. A man named Joseph A. Dallin, who was said to be an Englishman on a visit to this country, made an affidavit long afterward that he had seen a man drowned in front of the pavilion on the afternoon of July 4th. According to Dallin's story, he was watching the bathers when his attention was attracted to a swimmer who was about 50 yards outside the life raft, who seemed to be half swimming, half floating on his back, and slowly approaching the raft, as if drifting on the tide. When the swimmer was within 100 feet or so of the raft, he suddenly turned over on his face and sunk. Dallin was sufficiently interested to examine the raft next day through an opera glass to discern if there was any aperture through which the swimmer might have come to the surface. But he seems to have been in no hurry to communicate either to the police or anyone else what he had seen. The cloud of suspicion, however, would have speedily blown away, and Austin would have been accepted as definitely dead, had it not turned out that his life was insured in two companies, both of which promptly refused to accept the evidence of his death. One of the policies, for $15,000, had been issued by the Mutual Reserved Fund Life Association in 1885 payable to Austin's estate. The other was insured by the United States Mutual Accident Association on July 1st, three days before Austin's disappearance. Austin visited the company's office that day and obtained the insurance on his personal application. He represented himself as a man who traveled a great deal and said that he was in excellent physical health. It was recalled afterward that he demurred somewhat at paying the membership fee of $10, that he went out as if dissatisfied and then returned and finally concluded the bargain, after getting a rebate on the premium. 
He asked the secretary particularly whether the policy would go into effect from that very moment, and asked that it be mailed to him without delay. The policy was accordingly mailed to him that afternoon. From the time that Joseph E. Austin, the executor of his brother's will, made his demand on both companies, detectives scoured this country and Canada in search of the man who, they were firmly convinced, was in hiding. Although his whereabouts could not be definitely determined, it was believed that at the approaching trial evidence would be submitted to show that several persons had seen and conversed with Austin at Shrewsbury River and other places after his disappearance. There was reason to believe that the missing man found a secure retreat in the fastness of the Ariondac wilderness, from which, in various disguises, he made occasional trips to visit his children who are being educated in Canada. Mr. F. A. Burnham, then counsel, now president of the Mutual Reserve Fund, said, There is no doubt that Austin is alive and in hiding, and that his disappearance was simply a carefully concocted scheme to defraud this company. It is quite possible that Austin never went near Manhattan Beach, and that the jewelry and valuables were placed in the bathhouse by a confederate. Here, said Mr. Burnham, is his picture as he was more than a year after his disappearance. The portrait represents a tall-statured man in a hunting costume and Winchester in hand, standing in front of a rough hunting lodge. It had evidently been cut from a group for one side is a portion of a companion's figure, similarly clad and accoutred. When asked where he had obtained the picture, Mr. Burnham smiled and said, I'm not quite prepared to tell you how we got it or where it was taken. Mind, I don't say it was in the Ariondacks, but everyone knows what a famous hiding place those trackless woods would make for a man who wanted to disappear utterly from the world. When he disappeared, we tried to get from his family a picture, which we would have sent broadcast over the entire country, but they declared that they had nothing but an old tintype. Austin's will, dated January 28, 1885, leaving all his property to his children, was admitted to probate, without opposition, on September 21, 1891. Shortly afterward, the three children were taken to Canada, where they are living with their relatives. Mr. Etlinger, manager of the Death Claim Department of the United States Mutual Accident Association, said, We have made some investigation, and were satisfied long ago that Austin was alive. I don't think there is any doubt about it. As far as this company is concerned, however... It doesn't make a great deal of difference whether he is alive or dead. Our policy was an accident one, and in view of the circumstances of his alleged death, admitting that it took place, it is obviously impossible to determine whether it was accidental or suicidal. I fail to see how any claim can be made on us. Joseph F. Austin was firmly convinced that his brother was drowned and that his body was swept out to sea. 
He said that his brother had no conceivable motive for disappearing, and that his character forbade the presumption that he would attempt to defraud anyone. While he was not rich, he had means sufficient for his wants, and his business was in a prosperous condition. Mr. Austin thought that the picture in the possession of the insurance company was taken years ago, while his brother was on a hunting trip in the woods. The Mutual Reserve Fund Life Association, having refused to play a claim to the beneficiaries of a man whose death was not proved, and who was, with good reason, believed to be alive, suit was brought for recovery. The trial came on in the Supreme Court of the City of New York, January 2, 1894, and terminated on the 16th of the same month, with a verdict for the plaintiff for the full amount of the policies, $15,000. The result was anticipated as soon as it became apparent that the court would be likely to submit the case to a jury for determination. The only expectation of winning the case was founded upon the opinion that no proof was submitted to the jury on behalf of the plaintiff tending to show that Austin was dead, and in that opinion, as matter of law, the counsel of the association is as confirmed today as ever. After the verdict was rendered, the association would not authorize an appeal, but directed payment of the full amount of the claim basing action upon the idea that the verdict was a justification for the payment of the claim, such a payment being without warrant or authority independently of such verdict. At the same time, there is not the slightest doubt on the part of the men of trained observation that John C. Austin did not die by drowning at Manhattan Beach on the 4th of July, 1891, the date of his alleged death and it will not be surprising if detective skill will yet be able to produce him alive and well, in view of evidence in possession of the law department of the association. End of section 89